So Lily, it's good to have you here this morning. I'm really excited to be here. <laughs> um, so let's talk about feminism and faith. Um, yeah, let's do that. Perhaps if you could share a little bit about um, why this topic is important to you or you know, what your journey has been with these two topics. Yeah, so I grew up in sort of an amalgamation of different Christian traditions. Um, my mom for a while was sort of um, kind of fundamentalist adjacent, I'll mm-hmm. say, and very, you know, sort of in um, very conservative traditional values. Mm-hmm. And so I went to a um, very conservative uh, parochial school. Um, and so in that tradition, um, women aren't allowed to be in leadership roles. And in that church, uh, women aren't even allowed to vote in church decisions. Hmm. Um, so if you have, you know, if, uh, meetings coming up at church, you have to let your husband know how you want <laughs> to, uh, how you think the decision should be made. And I was, I, I went to that school, but I was never part of that church. Um, okay. And then I had a, um, uh, sorry, um, <clears throat> and then I had other sort of, um, what we call it, evangelical mm-hmm. experiences too. So I had kind of a mixture of conservative, um, evangelical upbringing, um, mm-hmm. both mainstream Protestant and, you know, sort of the more, I'm going to call it loosey-goosey evangelical upbringing. <laughs> um, and then in college, I went to a more, I started working at a more progressive um, Lutheran church. Mm-hmm. Um, and that sort of opened my eyes a bit. And that's where I really started uh, encountering kind of um, expressions, gender inclusive expressions for God, which at mm-hmm. first I have to say I was very uncomfortable with because mm-hmm. I'd always, you know, I was like, that's what heretics do. <laughs> um, and then I had a real crisis of faith when I was first uh, encountering um, LGBT persons mm-hmm. in my life because mm-hmm. um, in my upbringing, I'd always been told that these people are bad and you can't be a Christian if you're gay. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't reconcile that with my experience of my friends and these people who had genuine love for the world around them. And mm-hmm. I thought, how can, I can't, I can't exclude my gay friends and if that means being Christian. Mm-hmm. And so it was, a, uh, I remember I was driving up like highway 77 to Wahoo. I was like, I can't, I can't do this. I can't mm-hmm. be a Christian if it means I can't uh, accept gay people in my, you know, sort of in my life without condemning and judging them. And so right. I sort of moved away from Christianity for a bit. And then, but because I was, I was working at a church. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was sort of still in that. And so yeah. I, I gradually came back to it and I actually ended up going to seminary for a year and a half. Um, Cause I thought I wanted to be a pastor. <laughs> Turns out I didn't want to be a pastor <laughs> at all. Um, but that, then I started exploring more um, feminist text. Um, feminist theology and ways that we can um, use feminism to explore Christianity. And that really sort of enlivened my faith then and Mm -hmm. made me want to be more of a spiritual person. Yeah. Um, So one thing that we touched on last week, we were talking about queer theology for our show. Um, And and today we're kind of talking about feminist theology. And one question that I had from, um, you know, somebody in our congregation that I was having a conversation with about these shows, um, he asked, well, naming 
naming these sets of ideas as feminist or queer, um, doesn't that kind of discount them as other and say that, you know, there's theology and then there's feminist theology, then there's queer theology. And why is people who think that feminism and feminism is important, why would we want to put that label on it? Um, why would we not just call all of it theology? Right. Um, and so that was something that we didn't get to address much last week, but I think it's an important question um, to kind of, you know, lay out for people um, and kind of explain a little bit, like, why why label these, you know, theologies? Right. And I think part of it is understanding that they are other mm -hmm. from our traditional um, understanding, but I think it's more important that we label, uh, you know, theology as theology of white male colonialism. <laughs> right. Um, and so that helps us understand the perspectives where these come from and that mm -hmm. we recognize that theology is vibrant and can take uh, different varieties of perspectives and that sometimes those perspectives aren't always going to mesh and aren't always going to align perfectly. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think it's important that we label them so we recognize the roots of where they are and we understand the perspectives, but it, I think it's more important that we label the, you know. Kind of quote, the kind of the regular, theology regular theology as sort of, yeah, white male colonial theology. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I think I would agree. Um, and it, the example that, you know, I've run into is I was in a class um, about practical theology and the professor was introducing a book that was kind of the intro level book that was published, you know, a decade or so ago. Um, and there were like 10 chapters in the book. The first one was called practical theology. And the second one was called Asian practical theology. The next one was African-American practical <laughs> theology. You know, the next one was, you know, feminist practical theology. And, you know, they, some of the professors at my seminary were involved in writing the book. And so they talked about um, their experience working with the publisher. Um, and th one of, so the writer that was doing the chapter on Asian American theology kind of really raised some questions about the validity of that as a title, because as we know, there are lots of different cultural expressions within right. Asia. Asia. <laughs> it's yeah. like a whole continent. Um, and, there's also, she's like, also, you know, you're giving me cat. So like every chapter was organized in the same categories in terms of like in worship life, right. family life, you know, all of these things. And she's like, those categories that you're asking me to write under don't even fit, you know, my, my communities, the way we live out our theology. Um, and so it was very much like, the minorities were being expected to fit into this template mm. of quote practical theology that was really, you know, white, cis, straight, right, American, you know, theology. Um, and so, uh, you know, after the, the Asian American writer um, kind of spoke up about that, the, the two um, white people on the writing team were like, the, the publisher wouldn't, budge in terms yeah. of like the structure of the mm -hmm. chapters in terms of the titles of the chapters but they said okay if you're going to have um you know you know all of these other ethnicities represented let's let's do a chapter on white practical theology right um and name that 
So it's it's the naming and kind of an equality in naming, I think, that's the point. Yeah. I often uh, use a sports example right. for this. Um, and so we have we have basketball and then we have women's basketball. Right. We have the World Cup and then we have the women's World Cup. Right. And so somehow naming that, you know, the women as other. Right. But I had an experience where I was very bored one day and I was flipping through the channels and I saw volleyball on and I got very excited because I love watching volleyball and I turned it on and lo and behold it was men's volleyball and I got very upset <laughs> and I wrote a little like uh, email to my cable provider and I was like listen volleyball is women's domain right. like this is the one sport that women have if you're going like men are the other right. in this and yet it was one of those like oh well, why wasn't it called men's volleyball? Because right. men's volleyball is the other. Yeah. And so, but rather than calling it men's volleyball, I think we need to move to naming it men's basketball, women's, women's basketball, basketball, men's yeah. World Cup, women's World Cup. Right. Yeah, exactly. And I think, um, so part of it, I think this 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 naming of social location is sort of a way in which, you know, marginalized communities or more marginalized communities are hoping to lead by example yeah. in a way that gets everybody to say, this is where I'm coming from. Right. Because everyone has a specific theological, um, I like your word, location mm -hmm. that they come from. And I think naming it helps you recognize that it's not um, a universal worldview. Right. Which I think is so much of the barrier um, for you know mo modern society with Christianity yeah. is because so much of you know Christian history and tradition and theology um, has kind of been written in the like these universal generalities. Yeah, um, and this is for all people for all time and yeah, in all space. I've, exactly, and that's yeah. number one, not very humble. <laughs> um, and number two, I think people are you know people our age are really pushing back against that, like life is different now than it was, you know, 2000 years ago. Um, right. And the tenet of postmodernism is, you know, individuality and, mm -hmm. you know, sort of recognizing not everyone has the same universal experience. Right. Exactly. Um, and so as we think about um, feminism, as it relates to the Christian faith, um, that's kind of what, you know, what it's all about is, um, I think is naming and exploring Mm -hmm. um, the experience of, of being a woman yeah. um, and putting that, you know, putting our lived experiences into conversation with a faith that has been very patriarchal yeah. um, for the last, you know, many centuries, um, but that does have these rich traditions of, um, of femininity of or of the feminine sacred mm -hmm. um of, of honoring women's experiences if they can be uncovered yeah um well and i think um i have some one of my best friends is orthodox and mm -hmm. i think um it's important that we point out that we're we're protestant and so we come from a protestant perspective whereas mm -hmm. in catholic and orthodox traditions have a very different interaction with uh, feminine um, especially with, you know, because they have a tradition of saints. And so there's mm -hmm. a lot more representation um, 
with female saints and especially with Mary mm-hmm. um, and the role of Mary is magnified in the Catholic church and in the Orthodox experience as well in the same way that it's not um, for Protestants. And so I had uh, one my Orthodox friends is like, well, you, you lose a lot when you lose Mary because you lose that balance, you mm-hmm. know, because you have, you know, very um, patriarch or, you know, very masculine. We had the father, the son and the Holy spirit. But as we've explored in the past, the Holy spirit often has some more f- perhaps feminine energy than, mm-hmm. um, you know, medieval theologians liked to think mm-hmm. or, you know, gave us the impression of. Right. And the, um, and yeah, and in growing up Protestant, United Methodist, I have to say, we, you know, we really only ever talked about Mary uh, during Advent, uh, you know, right before Christmas. Right. Um, and it was kind of, uh, and even then it was, I think we gave her one week, you yeah. know, like, yeah. you know, the angel comes to Mary and tells her she's going to have the baby Jesus. And that's the only time we ever yeah. talked about she's, Mary. She's the vehicle for the baby. And that's, and that's, that's all. it, which yeah. that's problematic. Um <laughs> In many, on many levels. Um, but, and I, and I can remember, um, you know, as someone, so growing up Methodist, but also having some, you know, small town Kansas kind of conservative values layered on top right. of that, especially around, you know, purity and, and sex and um, all of that. Um, I can remember being like, scared of Mary mm-hmm. um, in a, like because she was you know an un, a young unwed mother right um, and I, I remember like dreading being asked to play Mary in like the Christmas pageant oh really yeah because I'm like you know she well she's young and she's pregnant and she's not married and that's dirty and mm. bad and so all of that um, in a way I mean we talked about you know, Mary is holy and good. Like, oh, yeah. she was chosen by God. But the kind, the, the layers of purity culture were kind yeah. of so thick. I was still like some, it was also shameful. There was still shame there. Um, I, oh, in, in my perspective, yeah. uh, when it came to Mary and then when it came to my own body around, mm. um, around, you know, sex and childbirth and all of that. Um, so yeah, that's fun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and so, but, you know, going to, going to seminary and, um, you know, having more conversations with people, reading more, kind of getting out of that conservative space, um, I've come around to recognizing the, the importance of body, you know, an embodiment, um, you know, and that's in one way what Mary gives us, I think. Is I mean, without Mary, I mean, Mary's not just a vehicle for Jesus, right? But like, if Jesus hadn't had like a physical human birth, right? That really takes away f- from the what Christianity is, period. Right, right. You don't have an incarnation, yeah, an incarnated God, um, exactly. Which really, um, that's one of the foundational tenets of Christianity, exactly. So you really need an incarnational God, and and Mary. Um, and, and Mary provides that not only, I think, you know, we talk about the, the, the birth a lot, but also, I mean, we assume that, you know, Mary raised Jesus. Right. And, you, you know, know, there's references to mm-hmm. her at the wedding at Cana, right. um, at the cross, you know, and that, you know, she has a full experience of motherhood mm-hmm. and that, you know, we, 
um, we don't see that in Protestant tradition as much. Right. We don't talk about it. Um, and so what another thing, so talking about, you know, kind of the feminist lens, you know, reading the Bible through the feminist lens, not only do we, um, can we talk about Mary um, and how important she is, how, uh, but also for me, r- looking at the Bible in that way, I see a lot of women yeah. um, that kind of are hidden otherwise or hidden in traditional interpretations. Yeah. Well, their, their experiences aren't uh, unpacked the same right. way that other male characters yeah. are. They're sort of like supporting characters. Yeah. Um, and even if they aren't, uh, even if they're supporting characters, there's malice given to their motivations and right. their actions yeah. often. I think of um, the story of, you know, David and Bathsheba. Yeah. Which we've talked yeah. about. Um, so, you know, in more traditional um, interpretations, um, you know, the, you know, David sees Bathsheba bathing on the roof and thinks he just has to have her. Right. So, you know, he takes her and sleeps with her and she gets pregnant and he's like, oh no, now I have to kill her husband. So he goes and kills her husband. Right. Um, and this is all, you know, all, all of the sin that David does is attributed to Bathsheba. Yeah. You know, oh, she tempted him. Yes. How dare she? Why was she bathing on a roof where he could she, see her? She knew that her rooftop was in the eyes, eyesight of the king. And, right. Yeah. yeah. So and, it's all her fault. Yeah. Um, but if we, you know, th- you know, if you look at some of the historical facts of the time, uh, bathtubs were on roofs. That's, you know, yeah. how people bathed. That was kind of the only option. So she was minding her own business, you know. Yeah. You know, bathing herself as every other woman would be. And David was being kind of a, a peeping Tom, if you will. Right. And um, Well, I think even if you just look at the text, there's nothing in the text that attributes, like I said, any any sort of untoward behavior on Bathsheba's account. Mm -hmm. All the text points to David's wrongdoing. And David is in a position of power and he's the one who, you know, doesn't, you know, he's not with his troops. He is at home. He's, you know, then he sleeps with another man's wife. Mm -hmm. He, you know, then arranges to have that man killed. And all the text points to David's wrongdoing. But yet, because David is such a, integral figure I think there's a lot of discomfort in recognizing like David has behaved in an atrocious way Mm -hmm. and so we try to explain that away by putting that on Bathsheba right Um, and so in looking at this text specifically through you know a feminist lens a sermon that I preached last year um, was called David Bathsheba and hashtag me too. Yeah, because, I remember that one. <laughs> really good. Thank you. Uh, because, I mean, that was at the time when all of the Harvey Weinstein stuff was coming out. Yeah. And it's really that modern day event is so similar to the David Bathsheba story in that a man in power is, you know, using his power to manipulate and take advantage of a woman yeah. uh, who can't really say no. Um, so, so yeah, it's about... And so those, that's the kind of thing that can be unpacked yeah. when we, you know, yeah. give um, voice to the the female characters in the story. Um, when we look at look at the Bible from a feminist perspective, yeah, I think one of the uh, one of the women 
in the Bible that I've been really intrigued by lately, and we've talked about this some, is mm-hmm. Hagar, because she came up in our summer, summer sermon series. Mm-hmm. And for those of you, um, well, I guess first we'll backtrack and say, for those of you listening, and if you're curious, um, the story of David and Bathsheba occurs in First Samuel 11. Oh, thank you. Um, for the reference, um, for you Bible nerds out there. <laughs> Um, but back to Hagar, who appears twice in the story of Genesis um, in chapter 16 and then in chapter 21. Um, so brief recap, Hagar is the slave woman of Sarai and Abram, um, and she's Egyptian, and so she serves in Sarai's household. And so, as you know, Abram and Sarai have been living a nomadic life because God has called Abram out of Ur. Um, and then at this point, Abram's getting old and he still hasn't had any kids, which is very important because he has, you know, like these tents and these sheep that he wants to, right. you know, he wants to pass on, wants his, to legacy. Pass on his legacy. Yeah. And so Sarai, because she has been unable to have children at this point says, okay, here's Hagar sleep with her. Maybe you'll have, maybe you'll conceive a child with her. Um, and that way you, you know, you'll you have can, an heir, you'll have an heir, mm-hmm. you know, you'll have a biological heir. And so, lo and behold, that happens. Um, but then uh, Sarai, then Hagar gets um, mouthy, we might say, or uppity mm-hmm. with Sarah. Um, and then she runs away because Sarai has been treating her so horribly. Mm-hmm. Um, and then God appears to her. She goes back later. And then later on, God makes the covenant with Abram, then changes his name to Abraham and mm-hmm. Sarah. Um and then, and then after that is when God says, oh, you're going to conceive a child. And Sarah's like, nah, I'm too old, man. And lo and behold, it happens. And then because Sarah now has a child, she's jealous of the interaction between Isaac, her child, Ishmael, Hagar's son. And so she has uh, Abraham send Hagar and Ishmael away. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the um, broad outline of the story. But what I find really interesting, and you've had some interesting perspectives too on mm-hmm. this story, is that in Hagar's story, God basically makes the same promise to Hagar that he makes to Abraham. Mm-hmm. And so, let me find my... Um, and so in chapter 16, you know, this is the first time that she runs away because she's pregnant and she doesn't like the way Sarah's been treating her. And so you know, God comes, the angel of the Lord comes to her and says, go back to your mistress. And he says, I will so greatly multiply your offspring that they cannot be counted for multitude, Mm -hmm. which is basically the same thing that God says to Abraham. It's like your offspring will be more numerous than the stars in the sky. Right. Um, Well, and then in what happens to Hagar, she, so the second time she runs away, um, you know, she goes into the wilderness. And well, she's sent away. She's sent away. Yeah. Um, she goes into the wilderness and is basically um, waiting for her child Ishmael to die. And right. she, you know, puts him under under a bush, I believe, to you know try to protect him from the scorching desert yeah. sun. And she goes and she uh, cries and prays to God, yeah. like she doesn't want to watch her child die. You know, and God comes to to them and you know and, and promises to. Um, you know, to save them and provide for them. And then she, interestingly, she's the first person um, in the Bible to name God, yeah. um, which is kind of a big deal in Hebrew, um, uh, 
cult culture and the Hebrew religious culture of the time, names were very important. I mean, they were kind of seen as like, if you knew someone's name, that was like understanding their essence, yeah. you know, like who they really are. And so earlier in the Bible, you know, we see people narrating God's name, mm-hmm. you know, and there's different names for God. There's El and, and Yahweh, um, El being the more generic version. Um, and Hagar, um, what is, do you have the scripture? Yeah, there, I got Lord? it up here on my handy dandy Bible app. Um, and so this is actually, yeah, this is in chapter 16, verse 13. So this is the first time she runs away mm-hmm. and she's still pregnant. And she says, um, so this is after, so God says, you know, I'm going to great, uh, multiply your offspring. Mm-hmm. There's a prophecy about her son. Um, and then first thing, Sorry, verse 13 says, so she named the Lord who spoke to her, you are El Roy, for she said, have I really seen God and remained alive after seeing him? Mm -hmm. So to me, I mean, I was, I've been reflecting on this. I saw uh, something on the internet about, you know, Hagar being the first to name God. And traditionally she's, I mean, in typical like um, Western, male Protestant interpretations of this story. I mean, Hagar is mistreated. Like people, they recognize that, but she's kind of a minor character. She's not, um, she's, you know, still had a child, uh, you know, out of wedlock, you know, she's kind of, um, you know, put down. But what that signals to me is that she's really important because of the importance of names and naming, um, to be the first to name God is really significant. Yeah. And to think about that, you know, as a, in a feminist, uh, from a feminist perspective is, you know, is sort of to postulate about like, what is that? What's the significance of that? What does that mean? What does that say about um, the significance of women to God, Mm -hmm. the significance of women in the role of, uh, of of family, of society, of the world, um, and I think that's really interesting to think about. Yeah, well, and I think it has something to say about the nature of Christianity and the nature of God because Hagar, the text goes to great lengths to point out Hagar is an Egyptian. She's an outsider. Um, the traditional interpretation I've heard is that um, Abraham and Sarah or Abram and Sarah at the time tried to like circumvent God's plan to create a great nation. But there's not really anything um, in the text that really supports that because God doesn't make, you know, the name change covenant with um, Abraham till after um, Hagar uh, is pregnant with Ishmael. And so I think that, I think that's that particular interpretation doesn't necessarily hold up. So I think it's important that Hagar, again, is this outsider um, and yet God makes a promise with her as well. And like you say, Hagar experiences God um, in the same profound way that the other patriarchs in the um, in the deuterocanonical books do. And that's not something that gets a lot of um, gets a lot of play. Right, exactly. Um, and so that's, I guess, you know, we've kind of been talking this first half of the show about, you know, what looking for the feminine, 
can offer yeah. when it comes to uh, the Christian tradition and especially um, biblical interpretation. Um, we have to take our mid-show break right now. Uh, I need a coffee break. Lily <laughs> needs coffee. But when we come back from the break, um, I think we're going to talk about um, you know part of like what we mean by women. Um, so we had a conversation this week about. Um, including trans women in our, in our communities and in, um, in our exploration of yeah. the, of the and feminine. What it, what it means for womanhood. Yeah. What does womanhood mean? Um, how can trans women be included in that definition? Um, how can we as communities of women and mixed communities of men yeah. and women, how, how can we live together in ways that are life-giving to all of us? Um, so we'll talk about that um, after this break. You're listening to Counterbalance Radio here on KZUM 89.3 FM and KZUM HD. I am your host, Beth Menhusen, here with Lily Spader, and we are talking about uh, feminism, womanhood, and faith. Um, the song we just heard is What It Feels Like for a Girl by Madonna. Um, and I chose that song specifically because I think it, um, in a way only Madonna can, gets to um, gets to the question of, of womanhood. What does it mean to be a woman? Um, what does the female experience contribute in community, um, in relationship with, um, with other women and with men? Um, and we promised that we would, um, you know, talk for this, our next, uh, 20 minutes here about that, about, um, about who we, about how we live out womanhood, Mm -hmm. about how we experience it, um, in community. And that song, I think, um, gets to a couple interesting points. Um, the first, you know, the very intro talking about, um, sort of the paradigm of, you know, the 20th and 21st centuries of as we've, as the initial feminist movements have sort of achieved rights for women, um, some, and advocated for, you know, gender equality. What's happened is that women have kind of gotten permission to act more masculine, you know, like it says to wear jeans yeah. um, and, you know, those things which doesn't seem that extreme to us now, but at one time it was. Um, However, I think maybe we're at a point now where it's starting to go the other way, where where men now are being given permission to embrace the feminine side as well. But I think that's still controversial. Yeah. So in the quest for gender equality, um, we've sort of, you know, taken... We've gone one direction and sort of ignored the other, and not only I I think that's not that's not fair to men as you know who I think we all have feminine and masculine qualities and they've sort of been denied the you know the privilege of embracing the feminine sides of themselves, um, but also as the song says, um, the taboo against that still places. That says something about how women are valued in society. Yeah. Um, and like it says, because it's okay, you know, being male and masculine is valued. So, I mean, if you're a woman and you want to be more masculine, that's fine. 
but we still, to be a woman is still degrading. And so for a man to want to be more feminine is degrading. Yeah. Um, I think if I want to have, you know, fluidity in mm -hmm. kind of my um, gender expression. So some days I feel like wearing a dress Mm -hmm. and being tapping into my more feminine energy. And some days I feel um, I haven't done it recently, but I like wearing a tie Mm -hmm. sometimes. And that's definitely, you know, sort of a specifically masculine um, clothing expression. And so I can do that. Mm -hmm. um, And that no one, no one looks at me and no one questions my sexual orientation mm-hmm. or whether it's valid valid for me to express myself in any of those. But if a man were to do the same, it's like one day you feel like wearing a three-piece suit, one day you feel like wearing a skirt, there's definitely something, I think particularly in the Midwest, you know, there's something deviant about, about that, that. Yeah, taboo about that. Um, which kind of leads into the exploration of the experience of, of trans women and how they're included or or not or haven't been included in our understandings of, of feminism and womanhood. Mm-hmm. I think it's important to point out that um, Beth and I are both uh, uh, allies, but we're both cisgender mm-hmm. um, women. Right. Um, so one of the criticisms of I don't know, modern feminism, if you will, yeah. is that it's white women, white, yeah. white cisgender, straight women's feminism. And so um, kind of in the mid 70s, um, women of color started naming that like, hey, I mean, good work, ladies, but this isn't we're not yeah. fully included and uh, represented in this movement. And mm-hmm. that kind of, so the the feminist movement of women of color became known as womanism, um, which is a very valuable field. Um, But now kind of the latest, like, hey, check yourselves, is um, people are starting to name that modern feminism tends to exclude um, people who weren't born as as women. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, or excluding, you know, trans women, people who express themselves in feminine ways. Um, And so Lily, what are your reflections and and thoughts on that? Yeah, so I, you know, kind of in the last year, I've been thinking a lot about the experiences of trans women. um, And I come to the conclusion, I'm just really, this is going to sound trite, but I'm really thankful. And I've learned, I think I've learned more about what it means to be a woman and to be feminine through the experiences of trans women Mm -hmm. Um, because like we said, you know, like Madonna referred to womanhood is not valued Mm -hmm. the same way as manhood is Mm -hmm. in our society. And so for me, it's always been like, well, in order to feel like I'm valuable, I have to deny the more feminine parts of who I am. Mm -hmm. Um, And, or that, you know, wanting to be a mom or wanting to, be, you know, sort of nurturing or wanting mm-hmm. to have a home mm-hmm. um, are seen a, are, are not seen as valued. They're seen right. as, you know, can be weak. Mm-hmm. Um, but seeing trans women go to extraordinary lengths to achieve those dreams has taught me that there is something valuable um, in being a woman mm-hmm. and, um, and that I shouldn't 
just disregard those aspects of myself because that's something that, like I said, is very valuable. And so to see someone um, who may have the trappings of privilege, mm-hmm. um, because if you're born as a man, you're going to have some privilege. I'm like, why would you, why would you want to get rid of that? Yeah, give that up. Why would you want to give that up unless there was something fundamentally valuable but, yeah. about about being a woman right. and about being true to yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, so I w- I've been on a spate of watching um, sort of, uh, sorry, um, like body, um, what a, uh, plastic surgery, oh, you know, yeah. sort of body modification shows. And there was one, I forget the name of the show, but they had um, this woman on and, you know, she was uh, blonde hair, big boobs, um, very, you know, very Barbie-esque, mm-hmm. I would say. Um, and so she was looking actually to have like a breast reduction mm. because when she, um, and you find out that she's trans. Um, she's a trans woman. And, she, you know, she's like, I want to go back, you know, I want a more natural look isn't right. But, um, you know, she had gone to one extreme Same, and yeah. wanted to come back. And so... But the way she talked about it, she's like, I want to, you know, I want to meet a nice man. I want to have a house. I want to have a children. I want the white picket fence, you know, mm-hmm. and all that. Where if a cis woman had said that, I would have rolled my eyes and mm-hmm. been like, seriously, girl, get a career right. or something. But, and to hear her talk about it as, you know, this was something that has been so long denied mm-hmm. um, and that, that it was valuable to her and it was this dream and it was, it was really beautiful mm-hmm. in that. And so that was the first time I'd ever found value in that, you know, sort of traditional like 1950s um, look at outlook on life, outlook yeah. on life and outlook on family. Yeah. And I think, and, and there it's, it's important to name that I think certainly, you know, in our feminist beliefs or understandings, and I think the, for the most part, mainstream feminism today is all about a women's women having choice and agency right. over their lives. Um, so whether you're straight or trans, uh, you know, feminism wants to say you have the right, and, and they want to advocate for the right for women to, to self determine their futures, mm-hmm. whether no matter what they want, whether that's having a career, whether that's, you know, raising children. Um, And I think, you know, I think it's essential that as we um, strive to be, you know, communities and and Christian communities that claim to, you know, to value the lives of everyone, to see all people as created in the image of God, um, that we advocate for, um, that self, the right for self-determination yeah. of, of, of everyone, um, including, um, you know, trans women who, um, who have you know, these desires to, yeah. to, you know, to, to live more, more feminine expressions. Um, and, and I would agree with you that um, seeing um, and getting to know some trans women lately, um, somehow it does make me, and it's a feeling that I've had, um, around drag queens as well. It's like yeah. they, so like, like I mentioned earlier about my experience with Mary, um, there's a lot of ways in which to me, womanhood has felt very shameful. Mm-hmm. The realities physically of being a woman has felt very, you know, dirty and gross and weird. Yeah. Um, but seeing um, people who are born male want to embrace that has made me 
appreciate it and yeah. uh, be kind of amazed at that. Um, Lily, it looks like we have a caller, so oh. I am going to answer the phone. Um, if you could just keep the show going for a minute. Oh, okay. Um, I guess it's... Uh, um, so one of the things I've been thinking about uh, when it comes to uh, trans women's experience and trans person's experiences is um, this topic of sport um, and how we recognize and how do we make um, sport fair um, and I'm not I'm not a scientist I don't have you know the understanding of you know testosterone levels and what we should you know how that plays out and I think those are for um, other people to determine but I think it's important that as progressive Christians we root those conversations in respect um, I just recently had a conversation about that um, particular issue with some family members and it was very much the, oh, well, these are men trying to, you know, gain an edge in women's, um, in women's competition. I'm like, that's, that is a completely unfair way to talk about it I mean, because a trans person's experience is extraordinarily different than a cisgender person. And so I think that a, um, you know, that we have to recognize that, you know, no one is going to go through the experience of transitioning and having to come out to their family um, and to their friends and to uproot their lifestyle unless it's very important. And so regardless of how we ultimately determined, you know, what what is womanhood for the purpose of sports, um, we root those conversations in respect and again especially as progressive christians that we root those conversations with the recognition that all people are created in the image of god and that god loves all persons and that god has created all persons for good um so that's one rambling uh, that i have i'm trying to think of other um uh, topics of feminism. Oh, here, um, I will share this uh, fun anecdote with you. So on Easter morning, this past Easter, we had over at Connection Point, we had sunrise yoga. Um, and I am not a sunrise person, but I went and it was fantastic. Um, but the first thing that happened was I rolled in a couple minutes late and I... Uh, I walk up and I see there's just a, you know, on the front lawn, it's a group of women, a group of white women. And I first, I'm sitting there and I'm like, I roll my eyes. I'm like, oh, a bunch of basic white ladies doing yoga on Easter. And then I checked myself and I said, wow, that's a really uh, kind of misogynist uh, viewpoint to have towards your own gender that, and wasn't it the women who came to the tomb first early in the morning. And so that was a way for me to kind of wrap my mind and appreciate um, kind of sisterhood and womanhood. While you were gone, Beth, I pontificated on, <laughs> um, you know, the conversation of trans women in sport. Uh -huh. um, and I think, you know, regardless of how that conversation and those determinations are made, I think it's important as progressive Christians that we, root all those conversations in respect mm. um, because I like, I was telling everyone not to uh, 
oh, um, sorry. Um, but that so often those are rooted as like men trying to gain an advantage over women. Right. And, but that's not, that's not fair. Mm-hmm. And that's um, a gross uh, mischaracterization of trans women's experience. And I think mm-hmm. it's important as progressive Christians that we call those out and say, Hey, we can have a, a you know, disagreement about like what testosterone mm-hmm. means or how it plays, but we have, we treat Everybody everyone with respect. respect. Yeah. Um, that's a really good point. Uh, the phone call I just took was from a, a woman who, uh, shared that she was living in San Francisco, uh, during like the beginnings of the real modern feminist movement, mm-hmm. like in the seventies. Um, and she wanted to, uh, she pointed out, uh, that being involved in the movement then that they worked hard to get rid of the, the language, just a housewife, uh, which isn't, yeah something I had really learned about the feminist movement mm. before. Um, but she wanted to uh, ed- educate us younger oh. ladies well, ab- you. about, yeah, but no, yeah. in a very valuable way yeah. about the work that like, you know, like now um, was, was trying to do then and yeah. um, that they were advocating for the rights of women to have careers, but also to be housewives if right. that's what they wanted to do. And, um, you know, her perspective was that perhaps it's, you know, the male voice that yeah. has, has told us that those feminists didn't, you know, wanted to ruin families and, right, you know, right. all of that. I think um, that's an excellent point. That is a good point. Um, so yeah, we want to thank her for calling in and, um, for, you know, for her perspective for yeah. sure. And thank you for all your work yes, um, yes. in paving the way. Exactly. Um, it's such, such important work. Um, so we have uh, a couple of minutes here, you know, as we wrap up, I think one thing, one last point that we wanted to talk about was, um, women being in community with men, um, and how, how we can maintain our identity um, right. while wanting to have some of the same roles that men have. Yeah. Um, so if we, <laughs> I have another caller. Oh, we're so, so popular. We, we are popular today. Uh, just so Lily, yep. uh, oh, go. Uh, welcome to Lily's ramblings as it were. Um, so one of the things that Beth and I talked about in preparation is that in our 21st century, we have a lot, we have fewer, um, uh, same-sex gendered spaces and more mixed gendered spaces. And so, um, whereas, you know, sort of in the past and I definitely in biblical times, you know, there was definitely male spaces and female spaces. We have fewer of those um, uh, single gender spaces now and we have mixed gender. And so because of that, we have to have, new ways of being and new ways of understanding um, how we exist in those. But then also recognizing that, you know, having those single gendered spaces are actually important as well. Um, So how do we balance those without um, allowing, you know, uh, authority, you know, um, uh, without authority, and power imbalances to get in the way. And so I think that's something that we can explore in the future about how do we, how do we invite um, trans women into predominantly female spaces? How do we invite trans men into predominantly male spaces? How do we honor those? And then how do we come together 
in um, mixed gender spaces. Um, and as we talked about um, at the beginning of the show, there's not, it's, it's okay for women to take on masculine attributes to live in mixed gendered spaces, but it's not really okay for men to take on feminine attributes to live in mixed gender spaces. Um, for any of you Star Trek nerds out there, think about the, you know, the, the very first few episodes of Star Trek, the original series, where you have, um, if you look at the costuming and men and women are wearing the exact same thing, but as the show goes on, um, men aren't wearing the same sort of long tunic dresses where, that the women are. So I think that's, even in the 60s, they weren't quite ready for that. I leave you alone for two minutes and you're talking about Star Trek, I'm Lily. sorry. It's, <laughs> I can't talk to, but to myself. It's, it's like talking in the shower. <laughs> no worries. Um, we uh, just, the, the call that we just had was, uh, you know, a gentleman um, concerned that um, as the, you know, the women's voices have come to the center that it doesn't feel feel um as safe to be a man anymore specifically in the in the me too movement mm. um and um i guess you know i would say that we you know we all have to struggle with what um equality means for for, for all of us and we have to um do some hard reflection on um on what it what it what it feels like to be, you know, to have a complicated existence like um, certain people groups have had for for all time, I suppose. Yeah. Well, I think this is, we've talked about the difference between being feeling safe and mm -hmm. feeling comfortable, mm -hmm. and so I think that's a distinction that I think a lot of men are experiencing. A lot of I won't just uh, say men, but people of privilege are experiencing, and so I would. Encourage, you know, think about, is it, is it that you're not feeling safe? Mm -hmm. Is your, um, is your bodily existence in, th is it in threat or right. is it that you're not feeling comfortable? Is it that you don't have, you can't rely on old ways of being, right. um, and that, you know, someone might tell you, Hey, that makes me feel uncomfortable. I don't like it when you do that. And that to have that, um, you know, so I would encourage our listeners who are maybe having that experience, I think. Um, it's a brave new world we're exploring together, but yeah, to really wrestle with that idea of like, is it that I'm feeling unsafe or is it that I'm feeling uncomfortable? Right. And I think, um, you know, so much of this work for justice and for, um, and for, you know, for creating a, a, a better world for all of us is about that willingness to be uncomfortable together to, and to be uncomfortable and remain in the conversation. Um, so unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. You've been listening to Counterbalance here on KZUM Radio. Um, we hope that you'll tune in next week at 9 a.m. Until then, have a wonderful week.